we are in Hebrews chapter 13. One thing I actually, I think I forgot to mention in this service last week is that we have, uh, I wanted to let you know where we're going because we will be finishing up the book of Hebrews by about Christmas time. In January, we typically do a kind of a one-off study so that you can invite your friends, right? So you invite them to Oh, we're studying the book of Hebrews, right? That may not be all exciting to them. So we always kind of do, we call it a faith and family series. In January, we've entitled it, What in the World is Next? We're going to be looking at an overview of prophecy, of what the Bible tells us about what is coming next and what's kind of lining up. And that is actually going to, I think, set the stage for our next book study, which will start in February, which we're going to do the book of Revelation. So we're going to take it like we do, kind of verse by verse, passage by passage, of what does the Bible talk about that is still to come, and how does that affect our life today? But today we are in Hebrews 13. If you weren't with us last week, one of the things I mentioned is that the the whole feel of Hebrews changes a little bit from these big sweeping, the, the uh, supremacy of Christ, these big arguments that he makes to coming now to chapter 13 and almost this staccato, right, of how do you live this out? So he started with, well, you got to love the brethren. Then you got to love strangers. You need to love the, the, the forgotten, the prisoners, the those that are marginalized in this world and then we get to verse four you need to love your spouse marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers god will judge now i've shared with you kind of my weekly routine is tuesday is sermon prep day so i had most of the sermon written Wednesday, we have a staff meeting. We're in staff meeting. We're actually spend time praying about things that are going on. And of course, we have 150 men this week up in Payson. And right in the middle of prayer, the light bulb went on. Oh, I'm going to talk about marriage and sexual intimacy. And all those guys are gone. So it's going to be a predominantly woman environment thank you Jesus so then I had this brilliant idea you know because sometimes when I've done some of the relationship stuff I've invited Tammy to come up and she's never done the intimacy stuff so I I went home I thought that was a great idea and when I asked her she laughed at me and not like the ha-ha, that would be fun. It was the ha-ha, what are you smoking? <laughs> there is no way on God's green earth. You are on your own for this one. So here we are. Let's look at it again. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. His first thing is this. He's been talking about how do you live this out? You love strangers. You, you love um, the brethren. You love the prisoners. Remember them. But you need to also love your spouse. This is what God's, you need to honor this. And the big thing is this. That marriage is God's creation. It, it's not mankind's. You know, marriage didn't come about by, you know, thousands of years of human evolutionary history figuring out this is the best way to work. No, it actually goes back to creation. God is the one who made marriage 
first. I mean, it's the very first institution he made still before sin. Still in the perfect garden, there was going to be marriage. You go to Genesis 2. The Lord God fashioned to, into a woman the rib which he had taken from man and brought her to the man. By the way, that is the first wedding. Adam is waiting. God is the father, walks Eve to her groom. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This relationship is different from every other. This is greater than a parent-child relationship and a child-parent relationship. This is one man, one woman coming together in a oneness that is unlike anything else. By the way, Jesus shows up. Where does he do his first miracle? A wedding. Now let me ask you. Do you think that's a coincidence? I don't think there are many coincidences in Jesus' life. Then in Matthew chapter 19, he's asked, what about marriage? So he goes back to this. He goes right back to Genesis. And he answered and said, have you not read that they who created them in the beginning made them male and female, right? So this is about a man and a woman. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. So he adds this, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. This is God's design. This is not man's. By the way, you may know this, you may not know this. Uh, for us, this issue about what is marriage is not political, it's biblical. It's our worldview. It's at the heart that God created it. There's a specialness to it. Uh, there is a bill that is in the Senate that is going to be debated after these midterm elections about redefining marriage. I would encourage you, uh, email our senators, Senator Kelly, Senator Sinema. Express to them, we ought not be redefining marriage. We didn't give it the first definition, God did. Uh, call them, right? Because this is God's thing. And his whole point here in, in the text is this. Marriage is to be held in honor. Honor what God honors, not what culture says. So I have a good friend. Uh, he's one of our missionaries, Rick Seltzer. In fact, his wife and kids are down here. Rick travels for a ministry called Global Training Network where he goes around and trains pastors in uh, a lot of third world countries where you know basically they've had no Bible training. And he was telling me one of the last trips that he was at there in Africa, and they were teaching on Ephesians and a husband-wife relationship and come to find out that culturally, men there have many wives. So all these pastors had many wives. And the wives live out in a back hut. It's not near as nice as the hut he lives in, but they only get to come in when they're going to spend the night with them. And so he was having the discussion with them of, okay, this is what the Bible says, this is what you do, who are you going to listen to? You going to honor what God says? Or are you going to honor what culture says? And what the writer of Hebrews reminds us is this is not about culture. This is about you honor what God honors. I mean, that is our worldview, no matter how it strikes a culture. I mean, you, you go again, you go back to creation, that God made us male and female that God stamped his image. We are his image bearers. I mean, that speaks to how we look at life. 
So we honor the unborn because in conception, they are made in the image of God. And so we fight for that. We also fight for the, the aged and the sick. Why? Because they are in the image of God. They have great value and worth. This for us speaks about racial equality. That God made all men in his image. That just because you have a different color skin pigmentation has nothing to do with your worth and value. This for us is about the equality between men and women. That God made us with the same value. Yes, different roles, but the same value. Right? We have to value what God says and not what culture says. We think what was going on were two things. First of all, Roman culture, uh, depending on what you read at times, maybe didn't have the highest view of marriage. But probably what's going on are these believers who are thinking about going back under Judaism are, are probably being influenced by a very strict form of Judaism coming out of the Essenes who looked down on marriage, saw it as weakness honor marriage what does it mean to honor marriage it means to value it it means to hold it precious something is special to have a high regard a high view now here's one thing i do want you to know to honor marriage doesn't mean that as a single person your goal has to become to be married that that's not what this means you know this idea that you know you complete me Right? That's not biblical. That's Hollywood. In fact, I would even argue that if you're trying as a single person to find the person who completes you, you're setting them up to fail. Because there's nobody who's going to complete you except Jesus. Right? He is the all-sufficient one. Right? He's the one. And oh, by the way, hmm, Jesus was single. Did he not honor marriage? No, to honor means to, to hold it in high regard. To, to, you know, as you encourage and you speak to people that are married, you, you speak well of marriage. You, you, you don't treat it with disgust and, sh and shame. You, you deal with it in a very encouraging and powerful way. And, and that's what we are called to do, to, to honor marriage. Now, let me, let me go one other place because I've seen this kind of it's the opposite end of the spectrum. I've also seen Christians who have taken this idea that to honor marriage means that you, you, you work to save a marriage at all cost. So even when there's abuse and even when there's violence that because you honor marriage. Well, folks, that does not honor marriage. In fact, I would say that dishonors marriage. Jesus himself, the Bible, Paul, talk about that there are moments. Now, again, there's a fine line in there be between fighting and working towards, you know, trying to save a marriage and doing everything you can and coming to a place where you know before the Lord you've done everything and it's time to, to get out. That's how you honor marriage. But it doesn't mean that you stay in a, in a place where, where obviously you're not safe. That doesn't honor marriage. Let me suggest one other thing. Living together as two married people when you're not married dishonors marriage. 
And I know our culture says, no, that's the way you do it. And sadly, that seeps into the church. There are going to be people here this weekend who are living together that aren't married. And what I'm going to just try to tell you as your brother, you're dishonoring marriage. Because God has kept intimacy for those who have made that lifelong commitment together. And the reality is, whether you know it or not, whether you want to believe it or not, whether you want to accept it or not, you are. Because here's what happened of those who move in together before they're married with the idea of getting married, a lot of them don't. And of those that do, have you ever looked at the statistic of divorce rates of those who lived together before they were married compared to those that didn't? You've dishonored marriage. So as a believer in Christ, what are we called to do? Honor marriage. Then he says this, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. The marriage bed, the word for bed there is coit. It's where word we get coitus from. And it's this idea of intimacy, right? And God created sexual intimacy as this covenant sign of marriage. So you, so you go back to Genesis chapter 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife. They become one flesh. We were created in the image of God. God has always existed in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect harmony. So part of his creation and marriage was that it was going to kind of reflect that kind of relationship. And so he gave the covenant sign to be sexual intimacy, the coming together and joining physically of what's happened both spiritually and emotionally, the oneness that is there. Now, we don't get into covenant signs. It's not a big thing with us, right? We have contracts. But covenant signs were huge in biblical days. You think of Abraham. When God made the covenant with him that he was going to be his people, give him a great nation, give him the land, remember what Abraham was told. Go take these animals, kill them, cut them in half and lay them on their sides and because the covenant sign in that day is you made an agreement you did that you joined arms you walked between those dead animals and what you were saying is if i don't keep my covenant may god do to me what we did to those animals a pretty pretty serious stuff and if you remember with abraham he cut the animals he laid them on their side and then God caused a great sleep to fall over him, and God went through himself. It was an unconditional covenant. You think of, uh, you think of the Noah covenant. When, uh, when God had just destroyed the earth with an incredible universal flood, and God says, I'll never do that again. I'm going to give you a sign. It's a covenant. It's a rainbow. Oh, by the way, have you ever thought, if you stand under a rainbow, you're protected right and that's the picture it's the sign of the covenant for the children of israel not to get too crass here what was the sign of the covenant it was it was circumcision and the idea is if you don't keep the covenant you will be cut off and thrown away see it's it's a picture well the picture the sign of the covenant for marriage is sexual intimacy what god has brought your heart and your soul to to do now you express 
in, in the flesh, and, and you become one. In fact, he even goes on after this in verse 25 and says the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. This isn't just a physical nakedness. This is, remember at our heart, he made us male and female, and so the sexuality piece goes to the very core of who God made us, and it's in that that protection of a man and a woman who have made a lifelong commitment till death do us part that we're able to be completely revealed, completely known, and yet completely loved. That's the safety. That's the harbor in which God is designed for this to work. That's his guardrails. And in that lifelong commitment, man, there is, there's trust. There's, I, can, I can let you see because I know that I will be loved because this is till death do us part. And so God confined it to that. I think another reason God confined sexual intimacy to marriage is not just because of the oneness, but it's because it's the best place for kids to be raised. I mean, we have, we have a number of single parents here, Right? I think you've got the hardest job on all the earth trying to raise kids by yourself maybe you know my story I was a single parent for nearly two years I, I, I have no I had great family I have no idea how some of you do this it's hard in fact if you been listening to the stories collective Ginny Lewis uh, I think it was about 10 days ago and she talked about when her husband died and she had these two boys and she's trying to be both the mother and the father finally she had to talk with God and said God I can't be both I'm going to be the mom you got to be the dad right it's hard and God knew this was the best way to raise kids of both a mother and a father there and oh by the way when we think about for the rest of us how do we love the brethren we have a boatload of single parents in our church and they had the hardest job on earth how do we come alongside of them how do we support them how do we encourage how do we give them a break we got to love the brethren because they they have a really really difficult time i think another reason that god can find sexual intimacy to marriage is because he knew that's where our soul would thrive as opposed to be crushed you know that whole naked and not ashamed boy that raw place of our heart where we can let ourselves go completely in the intimacy that God designed for marriage, but we do it apart from that. And now people are in that place of our heart, and, but they can't be trusted. I mean, you look at today this big thing of revenge porn and all the stuff that goes on. And, you know what? We're, we're 50 years into this sexual revolution. Has anybody noticed how much depression, anxiety, suicide, alcoholism, uh, being uncomfortable with, where is this? Why? I think a lot of it comes back to this. God didn't make us to give pieces of ourselves away and to let people, and, and for there not to be that trust. And, and what happens, we begin to build these walls and th those things create all kinds of problems. But God knew that in marriage, right? So, so this is till death do us part. 
and we're not always pretty and we're not always got it all together but here's a person we've committed our lives together and so we're going to work we can we can have that openness we can be fully known fully revealed and fully loved and his point is this let the marriage bed be undefiled you see sexual intimacy in marriage is exactly where god designed it it honors him it honors marriage in fact i would go so far as to say this if you are in a marriage and there is not sexual intimacy and you have the ability you're walking in sin it's a sign of the covenant it honors the lord it's a part of this and here's why Because the desire for sexual intimacy moves us and develops oneness. So for any of you who have been married, who have been married longer than just past the honeymoon, all right? Let me put it that way, all right? We're trying to keep all this PG, but you'll know where I'm going here. Is that sexual intimacy when you're not good with each other emotionally it's hard and even if you get there it's kind of blah right it's just it's not it's not why because you're not pursuing each other you're not you're not ministering to your heart there's something else that's out of whack here and so sexual intimacy in marriage is important because it pushes us towards oneness what's good between our souls where do maybe i need to apologize where do i need to work on something how can i serve you it's the thing that drives us closer and closer together and so it's an important piece here and that's exactly how god designed it but not only does it build towards oneness uh it builds towards service. It's that one thing that God has given us of how we serve our spouse that nobody else in the world can. Because it's, re- it's reserved for this. Now here's a verse that people today love. This is, this is, you talk about culture, man. We love this verse. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Man, our culture loves that statement of course they forget that he turns it around now and says and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does see his whole point is this in marriage you have not only the privilege but the responsibility to love and to minister to the needs of your spouse unlike anybody else in the entire world god has distinctly given you that right that privilege but also that responsibility and that's what we are called to do it's the intimacy of marriage not only that when we minister to one another that way it keeps us from sin he goes on in the next verse and says, stop depriving one another except for agreement by a time, for a time. By the way, can I just remind you an agreement takes two people? One person just can't have an agreement. This is, an agreement is two people. 
so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. When he says, how do you live this out? Well, you've got you to love the brother, you've got to love strangers, you've got to love, you gotta, you gotta love your spouse, you've you got to keep the marriage bed undefiled, unsoiled. This is important because this reflects the things that are important to God. And if you don't, the problem is there's great consequences. Did you notice the last phrase? Fornicators, the word there is pornea, so we kind of know where that's going. But the idea, and it can mean all kinds of immorality, but mainly is sex outside of marriage. And adulterers, those who have sex outside of marriage, though they are married, God will judge. Consequences when we do not honor what God honors. See, here's the thing. Sexual sin comes with greater consequence. And if you don't believe that, then why do you think Satan spends so much time in our culture trying to get people wrapped up in sexual sin it has greater con consequence Be because it goes to our core i mean paul talks about this in first corinthians 6 he says flee immorality every other sin that a man commits is outside the body but the immoral man sins against his own body you know so if i lie ste steal and cheat i mean that's all kind of out here but you see, this is tied to my soul. This is to who God made me. And so if, if this is where the sin is, this is what it does. And sexual sin affects us. And it, it, it corrupts us on the inside. And, and again, that's why when you not only look at our country, but you look at history of the world, you look at the Bible, this is this thing that the enemy has attacked from day one because it causes so much, because this is about inside of us. I mean, I look at today and I look at the epidemic of porn. Right? Some of you are my generation, right? When I was growing up, if you wanted to see porn, you had to work hard for it. Like, I'm not even sure because I didn't as a child. But man, today, it's everywhere. But what we know, what we always thought, what now is demonstrably provable is porn rewires your mind and how God made you to act and made you to react in the intimacy of marriage now now it, it gets all rewired Be because here's the thing first of all it's easy you don't have to pursue anyone this is just it's easy it's selfish it's just what you want. But because it doesn't provide the emotional oneness, which is what our soul is really craving, now to get the same uh, set of endorphins to go off, it's got to get more and more and more extreme and more violent and more degrading and all of this. And that's exactly what's happened in our society. I mean, again, those of you my age, you ever remember growing up and watching television as a kid or listening to the radio and hearing commercials about ED? Little blue pills, right? Not that there's not, you know, some medical reasons why, but why is it so rampant? We're so rampant. As, as a society, we, we've rewired our brains. We can't respond to what, because it touches our soul. 
And I tell you, my heart breaks in the confusion of our society where we have sexualized everything and, and it's just, it is something that is so rampant with our young people and so many young people that are going into puberty or, or there and they're so confused about who they are. Why? Because this comes to identity. And then instead of telling them the truth that God made you as a male or a female, we're, we're, we're trying to, oh, you could do whatever, but that's not true. And it's, and these poor kids are being led astray and they're making decisions that are going to affect the rest of their lives. And yet the reality is, as believers, we know that we fall into the same traps. And his point here is this, sexual sin, it brings judgment. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Why? He loves us. I mean, do you remember what's like five verses before, verse 29 of chapter 12, for our God is consuming fire? He's talking to Christians here. He, he loves you too much just to, to let you go, right? Because this is going to make a mess of it. And what's so crazy today is so often what the, what the enemy does is he tempts us and, and we give in, but then we deal with that guilt and we shame. And, and so often now we walk into marriage and this is the place where it ought to be expressed, but because, because of the guilt and shame for the past, I can't give myself freely now. And so before marriage, we're having sexual intimacy. In marriage, we're not so much. You see how backwards this all is? But it's the knots the enemy ties us in. And the reality is that in, in, the, in what we did before and what we're not doing now, they're both sin. So how do we deal with it? And I got to be done, so I'm going to have to talk quickly. But there's hope. The first thing you all got to understand is that if we were to be completely honest, most of us, many of us anyway, I would probably guess most of us, have screwed up in this area someplace along the line. And here's the thing, folks. You can't go back and fix yesterday. You just can't. It's gone. But you can fix today. And you can fix tomorrow. And so how do you do that? Well, it starts with confession. We deal with it with the Lord. I mean, we sang earlier today about who we are in Christ and the beauty of his forgiveness and that he washes us clean. And folks, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from every sin. So it starts with getting it right with him, repenting, turning away from that and go, man, I I." I was walking the wrong way i'm going to do it the lord's way i'm going to honor god what you honor now maybe it means going to a spouse and confessing to them too and then we stand in our identity in jesus who are you yeah you're forgiven who are you i'm a i'm a blood-washed saint i, I belong to christ don't let the enemy steal now from what you've done in the past. Walk in obedience. Well, I think one of the best books is why I put it up here, Winning the Battle Within, Neil Anderson. You know, I often put books out. This is one book, when I put it out, nobody takes it because I think they think, oh, they'll think I'm a pervert, right? So there you go. You can get it. It's not that kind of a book. But this book is about how do you stand in your identity in Christ that when we have confessed that we have been made clean and holy and righteous and we stand in that 
and I can live that way. And when the enemy brings the accusations that I, that I remind him that my sins have been buried in the depths of the sea, never to be remembered again. And then you got to be intentional. Just like every other aspect of your marriage, communication, raising kids, money. Man, you got to be intentional with intimacy. It's important. I think what happens so often is we just, we don't, we're not intentional. It gets ruddy and boring. And There's so many good books out written by Christian authors. I just listed one there, Kevin Lehman on cheat music. Man, get the book, read it together. Be intentional as a married couple to develop this area of your life. And then for those of you that are single, I don't want to forget about you. Because you, you need to set appropriate guardrails because the enemy would love to give every reason why, well, you know, you, you've got to do it a different way. And you don't. You honor the Lord, he'll honor you. And I know it's tough. I mean, you all know my story. I was married for four years in a wonderful relationship. Sexual intimacy obviously was a part of it. And then God took her home. I'm 28 years old and I'm single. And it was hard. It was really hard. And then I met Tammy. And then I realized I didn't even know what hard was before. Because I loved her. And she's so stinking cute. And to be honest with you, at this point in my life, it had been a natural part of my life, and it was going to be a natural part of my life again. But in this moment, it wasn't right. And so you've got to set up guardrails to protect yourself and to do what's right before the Lord, to honor what God honors, not what culture honors. And when you do, not only does it bring great reward in this life, but it brings great reward in the next.